I realize this question could be for you a matter of opinion, but I would ask it anyway. Who do you believe is the most faithful man of all the Bible? Someone goes back and they study things that we'll see today from Faith's Hall of Fame. Founded there in Hebrews chapter 11. They said, well, certainly Abel was a faithful man in that he offered the proper sacrifice unto God without having to be forced or urged, but simply by essentially hearing God's command. Someone says, no, I don't believe that it's Abel. I believe it may be Enoch. Enoch, the Bible says, was so faithful that God took him up. He never had to die. Certainly, he must be a faithful individual in the Bible. Someone else adds, and they say, well, no, maybe it's the person of whom we spoke last week, Noah. We mentioned how he had unsinkable faith, the type of faith that all of us should hope and pray that we could gain. Certainly, he was and stands today as an example of a faithful man. Someone says, no, I've read through my list and I have concerns that maybe Joseph might be the most faithful man. We may mention him in weeks to come as being a man of unbreakable faith. How that he some way, somehow saw the future, saw the Israelite nation going into and finally coming out of Egypt. And he wanted his bones carried into the promised land. So he was too a faithful man of God. Someone then may turn and say, well, maybe it was Moses. You know, Moses had a chance to be a member of a palace. He was a prince himself, and he had wonderful and great things, but through faith he left those things, forsook them, and wandered away with God's people because he hoped for a promised land on the other side. Certainly he was faithful for what he did and for what he would set out to do, but maybe he's not the most faithful man you would know. Someone says, well, maybe it would be David. You know, David, even as a young lad, he had what you might consider early faith. He began with his faith earlier than many of the other Bible characters. Maybe it was him. And certainly David, too, was a faithful man. Someone says, well, maybe it's not any of those. Maybe it's someone of the New Testament, like Peter. You know, on the one occasion, at least for that brief moment, Peter had such great faith, he saw in the hand of God that he could walk on water. And for a moment, even he did. That took great faith. Certainly Peter had at times great faith. He had plenty of faith to preach and proclaim God's word on the day of Pentecost and to stand for it especially later in life. No, among all of these it seems that the most faithful man, the one who was faith-filled at least in all the Bible, according to the Bible itself, may have been Abraham. As a matter of fact, if you want to note this in your margin of Hebrews 11, go ahead and turn there. Open your Bibles now. We'll be looking at verse 8 to begin. But you might put a notation out there in your Bible that refers you back to Romans chapter 4 and verse 11. Romans chapter 4 and verse 11 speaks of Abraham and says that he was the father of all those who believe. Therefore, we get the terminology we use today and say that he was the father of the faithful. Someone has stated it like this. They said that if faith itself had a school, that certainly the school itself would have within it the life that we live. That would be the textbook. They said the students therein may be all of us. The instructors or the professors might be the prophets and the apostles. But if all of that be the case, Abraham would be the dean and even the president of that school. That may be the case. A faithful man he was. 
And I want to notice with you, Lord willing, today and perhaps, Lord willing, next week maybe, some of the life of Abraham as we under the heading this morning, the unwavering faith of Abraham. Now, particularly his faith was unwavering from verses 8 down through about verse 12 because his faith was that which had the ability to sojourn. But if you fast forward on through verse 13 and much more, the chapter reveals how that he also had the faith to sacrifice. Notice with me Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8. The Bible says, by faith, that is through the will of or by the account of faith, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith he, that's Abraham, sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, with Isaac and Jacob, and being the heirs of that same promise. For he, that's Abraham, verse 10, looked for a city, whose foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also, his wife Sarah, or Sarah mentioned here, herself received strength and conceived seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. Matter of fact, she was upwards of 90 some odd years old because she was judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang out of there one and of him as a good as dead. So as many as the stars in the sky and the multitude in the sands by the which the seashore is innumerable. And we'll conclude today with verse 13. And these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers, and this definitely applies to Abraham, and pilgrims on the earth. Now I want to think about this unwavering faith of Abraham. And the first thing I want to notice with you in all of these that will develop, we're going to consider them from the standpoint of these being principles. These are not necessarily points. These are not things that we can consider and say, well, this applies to he and he alone. No, these are much better than that in my mind. These are principles that you and I can use and we can live by as we go through our lives. The first thing I want you to notice comes from verse 8. Let's reread it again. The Bible says, and by faith, Abraham, when he was, look at the next word, called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out, not knowing whether he went. The first principle I want to notice with you is what I have entitled, for my memory's sake at least, the voice principle. And all the voice principle simply says is this, we must, and underline that word, we must hear God. That's what Abraham did. The Bible here to emphasize the word again there from verse 8 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, that is, when he was literally and physically vocalized, poured his mind from the very mind of God. When he had an understanding of what God would will for him to do. Now we will review this verse often as we discuss these things. You remember what it said in Romans 10 and verse 17? The Bible there so clearly says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Maybe if we understood it better, and it's not literal, this is not the literal sense of the verse, but maybe if we understood it better, we might say in our minds at least, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the words, in the plural, of God. 
Now, when you look at it that way, we say, well, God has much to say to us. We can read the Bible, whether it be from Genesis on through the book of Revelation, the Old Testament particularly being for our learning, Romans 15, 4. The New Testament being for our lives as we read it in its entirety, the life of Christ, the commandments that are given therein, the way that we live. But, you know, in essence, it doesn't matter whether it be from Genesis 1 on through the book of Revelation and its final verse of that final chapter. It contains within it the word singular of God. It gives us, therefore, what God would have for us to know. And so what I want to urge us to understand is that Abraham understood the voice principle. He knew that when the God of heaven called down upon him that he had something both to hear and heed. Go back with me, if you would, to the account. Now, mind you, the account that is given that we're going to, it we found in Genesis chapter 11, it is in no wise the original account where Abraham was spoken to by God. As a matter of fact, we do not have the original account. Those words are not recorded as in to say, for the first time and forever, God spoke to Abraham. That's not what occurs here. Matter of fact, the first revelation we have here from Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 begins by saying, And now the Lord had, that is past tense, had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house. Watch these words I'm going to emphasize. That I will show thee. There are four statements I want you to underline in your minds, if not your Bibles. And that are the words, I will. Time and time again, as you begin to recount or reread concerning the life of Abraham, you have God or the Lord himself speaking to him. And time and time again, even in the verses we're reading here, he says, I will. And that's something of significance, I think. Because he says, and go into a land which I will show thee. Now the Hebrews writer records that account. And then he says, and I will make thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great that thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee. And I will curse them that curse thee. And all thy families of the earth shall be blessed. The statements here, I will, I will, I will. You know Abraham heard him, didn't he? You say, well, certainly he heard him with his ears. Certainly he understood probably that God was speaking to him in that way. He understood them as the words of God. We must hear the words of God. Now, is it always the case? Is it always the case that when we hear the commandments of God, we immediately jump to the conclusion that God is in charge? That's what Abraham must have seen. We, as if you will, know, as some would say, the rest of the story. We know the way things would conclude. We know the way things would end. And Abraham would end as a man of great faith having accomplished much for God. Contrast what's there said in in Genesis chapter 12 going back to Genesis chapter 11. The same type of verses, and I mean by that verses 1 through 4 reveal something. And it says, and the whole earth was of one language. Now here the context is being borne out that these people were out setting to build a tower and they wanted that tower to go as high as the heavens. When they attempted to do that, the Bible says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass that they journeyed from the east and found themselves in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, contrast here, Let us make brick 
and burn them thoroughly, and the brick and the stone and the slime for the mortar. And they said, Let us build us a city and a tower whose top shall reach the heavens, and let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see that city and the tower and the children that the men built it. And behold, he, we find out, confounded their languages. Now what is this? We have to begin with, if you want to put it down for your memory's sake, we have the commencement of things in that we ought to hear the word of God, as Abraham did. But then we have a great contrast. We have in chapter 12, Abraham saying, God said unto him, the Lord spake unto Abraham, and notice he emphasizes the words, I will, I will. What do you think when we read that Abraham, the next verse, went on and says, and Abraham, verse 4 of chapter 12, departed, as the Lord has spoken unto him, and Lot, and Abraham, and is 75 years old when he departed from Abraham. Who do you think he heeded to? Why, it's certainly the case. When Abraham heard this voice, this voice principle, he heard it as the word of God. When he heard it, he heard what the will, that is desire, of God was. Contrasting that with these pagan-minded people, why they were the type of people themselves who said, let us. Where was their faith? Their faith was in self versus Abraham's faith being in God. And so we have for us the voice principle, but that's not all that we have. You fast forward on into this, you understand the conclusion of this thing. Somebody says, well, who would we need to hear today? Do we hear God? Well, in a very real sense, that's whom we hear. We hear God. But who do we hear specifically? And by the way, how am I going to know that I'm hearing the right one? You know, if you go across this land and especially across this world, you're going to find people who say, well, I believe in God and His name is, and they'll put some name in that category. Or I believe in this being and He is the creator of this. And they'll put someone besides the God of heaven in that category. What does the Hebrews writer tell us? Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto us by the fathers, that's one group, the patriarchs, and then speaketh unto us by the prophets, but then he goes on in verse 2 to say, but hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, by whom he created all things and became the heir of the world. What am I saying? We hear the Lord. We hear the Lord. Now, the Lord in that sense is equal to or equated with, in deity sense, God. There's the voice principle. We must hear God. If I'm going to have unwavering faith, I cannot put myself in what I hear from my mind, from my head, if you will, or the minds of men. I have to put myself, my faith, in what I hear from God. But that's not the one we're going to spend our time on. It's not only the voice principle that applies to us. You go back and look in Hebrews chapter 11, rereading verse 8 a little farther and more carefully, says, And by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, what's the next word? Obey, and went out not knowing whither he went. Now this is not the voice principle. He's already heard the calling, if you will, of God. This is what I'm entitling as the venture principle. It's not enough. Even in the life of Noah last week, we pointed out that it was not enough for God to say thus and so as he did to Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, I will destroy all of the earth and all of its inhabitants. It repents me, even God said, that I even created these things. 
it wasn't enough for Noah to acknowledge that voice. Or in this terms, for Abraham to acknowledge the voice of God if he, either one or us, would do nothing with it. So we have to be moved, therefore, to do something. Now, what I want to consider with you, first of all, and you have to do this in your heart, is I want you to consider your or our situation. The better way of saying that is, where am I now? Where am I? You may describe yourself. I'll describe myself. You do this in your mind. My name is Jim Merle. I have a wife named Jennifer. I have a daughter named Juliana. I have a son named Cameron. I have a happy family. We live in a home that's in Munford, Alabama. I'm comfortable with that. We travel back and forth where we go in a Toyota van. I'm comfortable and happy to have that. That's a blessing. I am a gospel preacher. I have the opportunity to go here and to go there and to preach at any given time. And I enjoy doing that. And I may go through all these things and say, in my situation, where I am right now, I like it. And we might say this, I want to leave it that way. God forbid I would ever lose a spouse or a child or a home or a car or a work that I enjoy. Our situation. The problem many times with our situation in light of the blessings, and they're all that, they're blessings that come down from God, is that I can easily get comfortable in that situation. You can mark this in your margin or maybe go back to it. If you went back over to Genesis chapter 13, and you took view of what is said there in verse 2, you would find out that Abram, he's called there Abraham as we know him, was a man who was rich in cattle and silver and lands. Certainly his situation was that which then probably from human perspective, finite minds would have proven to be comfortable for him. Now that's our situation. But I want you to consider not just your situation, but then turn and consider the standard that we ought to set. You know, you may say, well, my situation is a standard. If you're like me, I grew up, I was born, I grew up, and I've lived, save a few years of my life. I've lived in Munford, Alabama. I lived not three miles hardly from where I grew up, the home uh, where I was given birth to practically. Not technically, it was the hospital in Anniston, but you, you see. What's our standard? Let me tell you about Abraham's standard here. We sing about it sometimes, we may not realize it. You ever sang the old hymn, Here Am I, Send Me? You say, well, that doesn't necessarily apply to Abraham. For example, if you went and found the scripture to back that up, that would be more along the lines of Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8, where Isaiah said to God, God, here am I, send me. Abraham had that. Go back to our scripture and review it again. Read what is said about him. He says in verse 9, he says, by faith he sojourned. In the land of promise, in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles and in tents. Now, we'll emphasize more of that in a moment. But even in this point, if he be rich, Genesis 13 and verse 2, if he have great lands, great cattle, great silver, if he had all of that, that could have easily become his standard. What I'm saying is this. Don't let your situation become your standard, even if it's good. You know, one of the most difficult things to do in life for anyone generally is to leave home. 
If they've had or do have a good home base, a good home life, somewhere where they're comfortable living, that's difficult to do. I don't know how you are, but I grew up with a grandfather on my mother's side. Apparently, he did not like leaving home. If they ever, 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 and they came fairly often, but if they ever came to our house to visit the grandchildren, guess what? They got there in the morning around 8 or 9, and they left about 3 in the afternoon because he had to be home by dark. Maybe you're that way. Don't let that be your standard, not from that literal perspective. Well, what I'm saying is we'd be more like the song. We'd be more like Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, to say unto God, here am I, send me. Why was Abraham able to do that? Why was Abraham able to hear the instructions to go out into a place, the Bible says it right here, and he went out not knowing whether he went? Why was he able to take his situation that may have been standard at that point and change that standard and go out? Because of faith. We would say, to paraphrase the latter part there, verse 8, he didn't have a clue. He didn't know but he went out anyway. As I live my life, I pray that as you live your life every day, as comfortable as we may get or have gotten, we need to be listening, not, not listening for a still small voice or anything or a thunderous cry from heaven, but listening through God's word for his next instruction. And if it is to change our situation, do it. It may be to change my life inside of my home where I live and where I dwell. It may be all together for God to say, I need you there. I need you to do this. Who knows what that might be? All of us as Christians, we serve God. Now here's the thing. Oftentimes when you meet someone who says, I just have trouble having faith. I have trouble Really believe in God. I read passages, for example, that tell me to go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to the nations and every creature the other reference of that same account gives us. I have trouble with that command. You know what? The problem's not with their faith. It's with their act of obedience. To know something, to understand something, to comprehend something is much different than doing it. So number one, Understand with me what I'm calling here the voice principle. That is, we must hear the word of God. Number two, understand the venture principle. That is, we must obey what we hear. And then drop on down a little bit more. Let's reread verse 8, tying it more deeply into verse 9. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith, he Underline the next word, please, in your minds at least. He sojourned in the land of promise in a strange country, dwelling, key words here, in tabernacles, that's a tent, with Isaac and Jacob and heirs for the same promise. For he, verse 10, looked for a city whose foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Friends, in my mind, this is what I want to apply to myself at least as what I'm calling the value principle. That is, I must set priorities. The value principle. What is the most valuable thing 
in my life. I ask you to notate at least that word sojourn. You know what that word implies? It doesn't imply that Abraham was a fugitive. You know, technically, when Moses left Egypt, Moses was a fugitive. All he wanted to do at that point in life was get out of there. Abraham was no fugitive. Abraham, as we might say, was all fine and dandy right where he was. He wasn't running from anything. Neither was he a fugitive. Abraham was no vagabond. You know, a vagabond is a person, they wander around and typically they never intend to find a home. They just want to move from place to place to place and just go about and go along to get along and, and enjoy whatever they find. Abraham wasn't that. Abraham was a sojourner, emphasizing more words. He was, as these were in verse 13, a pilgrim on earth. How do you get to that point? How could I possibly find myself being set with a value principle that is such that I can set the proper priorities in light of what God wills me to do? Remember, he's already heard the voice. He's already began his venture, if you will. And now he's come to a place in life where his mind, and this is a mental state as much as anything, puts the values in the right places. Two things I want you to remember about this. Number one, I want us to recognize the potential for peril. This is the more negative thing, but to recognize the potential for peril, consider your life. Now, pretend for a moment, if you can do this, Pretend for a moment that you are not a Christian. If you're a Christian, put that out of your mind. I'm not a Christian. And consider for yourself that you're not only not a Christian, you are as deeply seated in the world as you could ever be. And before we go any farther, remember this. Even a Christian can be as deeply seated in the world as he could ever be and not know it. Paul spoke to Timothy about a woman who was dead while she lived. Why, Paul? Because she lived in pleasure. But notice what would happen. If I were deep-seated in the world, the peril that I would have to recognize, or at least the potential for peril, is that I might become a companion of the world. James tells us, for example, and you can put this margin in your reference, James says, James 4 and verse 4, that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. I choose the word companion for that because sometimes friendships for us are acquaintances. No, a companion is a close cohort, is a person that we hold near and dear. He says it's the friendship, or better yet, the companionship of the world that becomes enmity with God. Now somebody says, what is the world as enmity? Enmity sometimes can be seen as a dividing line. That's one way of understanding it. But literally, the word could be better understood by taking a similar English word that sounds the same, enemy. If I'm a friend of the world, I'm an enemy of God's. Somebody says, I don't want to be that. Nobody would want to stand up and say, I'm your enemy. God. No, 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 never would they say. But to be a friend of the world is just to do it. So what is the potential for peril here? Number one, I could become a companion of the world. Number two, put this one down. It has to do with our conversation. And the word conversation is a New Testament rendering to mean the way that we live, our manner of life. 
We mentioned this quotation last week. At some point, at least, I remember specifically. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 tells us to love not the world. Now, that word, world, there is the cosmos of iniquity. Love not the world, neither or neither the things that are of the world. Then he goes on to add to that, for all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, why is it so dangerous to love not the world? Why is it so special that God says that we have not that ability or we ought not take that liberty? Because the world can break us down into their mold. Which leads me to the next thought. Those who are companions with the world begin to receive a conversation with the world and then begin Romans 12 and verse 2 to be conformed to the world. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Is there peril in being a part of the world? Certainly. Because ultimately, well, what? The last one here will be condemned with the world. Once one becomes a companion of the world, they begin to live a conversation in the world. They are then conformed to the world. Then eventually they are condemned with the world. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 32, the Bible tells us, Therefore we will be condemned with the world. The full quotation goes such as this, But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned, watch it, with the world. Somebody could even apply that and say, well, in a sense, Abraham was being chastened. You know that Abraham at the time when God called him, at the very time when he called him, with the scriptures revealed the age already, he was 75. At the time when God called him, he was living in Ur of the Chaldees, which basically was a pagan place. He wasn't an infant of faith. He wasn't one who was born into faith, born thinking faithful things. No, no, no. He was up in age, living in a terrible situation, and found faith. And he found it in God. Now, when I consider that, I want you to just keep going with this thought process a little and turn it. Not only do we think about or all we recall, if you will, the potential for peril, but also to recall the powerful preaching that was needful. We mentioned last week that Noah, for example, Noah was considered, the New Testament records him as this, to be a preacher of righteousness. We read of Abraham, we don't read specifically that Abraham did necessarily verbalize preaching, but we do know through the example that he lived, he constantly preached to those around about him. What do you think Abraham would preach in light of our situation today? I mean, if he were standing two-footed there in the United States as we stand, what might he preach in light of our world situation, in light of especially our country's situation, whether it be from the perspective of finances and government or, or whatever it is? Somebody says, well, I don't know where you're going with this, but maybe, just maybe, Abraham would preach separation of church and state. The government's too involved, or trying to be too involved, in our churches. Again, legally, from one perspective, to, for me to preach against abortion or homosexuality or several other things is supposedly legally illegal. No. 
I think Abraham would preach the sermon he preached every day of his life, which was not separation of church and state, but was separation of church from the world. Emphasizing our word in our text again, he was a sojourner. He sojourned. He was one, verse 13, who was also a pilgrim on this earth. He was in verse 13, likewise back up earlier in verse 9, a strange or in a strange country. He was a stranger. First Peter 4 and verse 4 tells us, wherein they think it's strange that we run not with the same excess of right, speaking evil of you. Peter's writing about a Christian and says, when the world sees you living a godly life, they're going to think that's strange. Interesting, Peter was the one who speaks of us being a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and also a peculiar people. Abraham was a stranger. When he walked away from his dwelling, when he walked away from his situation that he may have been comfortable in to an extent, when he walked away, he became a stranger. Here's the question now. This to me is a sermon he would preach, the one that we should all preach to the world or to sell. Do I live like the world? Do I talk like the world? Do I walk like the world? Would I dress like the world? In essence, then, would I be of the world? I ask you this question just for your review. If you had an opportunity, and you have to put in your mind whomever this might be, and, and, and if you're like I am, you're not that focused on any one person, but if you had an opportunity to spend time with a very, very famous person, maybe it'd be an athlete or an actor or whatever, a famous, popular person, maybe the president, who knows, if you had time to spend time with them, say Friday night at 7, and you had plans and you had that invitation in hand, and then you had a fellow child of God, a Christian, call you and say, can you come and eat supper with me or spend time with me Friday night at 7, what would be your choice? I had opportunities several years ago, and, and you may or may not know who these people are. I had an opportunity to eat supper with Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, Archie Manning, and the brother nobody knows about, Cooper Manning, all in one night. I'd like to think if I had another invitation that involved a child of God's, which none of those are, I would have taken it. What do we think about? What do we consider, for example, to be our goals in life? What are the goals that we have for ourselves or for our children or for our grandchildren? Do we hope and pray that they'll be strangers in this world? Pilgrims? We all could all quote together if we chose Matthew 6 and 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. That's the blessings I believe already mentioned in Matthew 5 and 6 shall be added unto you. Number one. Abraham was a man of unwavering faith because of the voice principle. He heard the word of God. Number two, because of the venture principle, he obeyed God's word. Number three, because of the value principle, he put priority in what God said. And the next one here, number four, I believe it is, because of what I'm going to call the vision principle. Reading the verses again, not to reread them all this time, but... Notice what is said in verse 10. For he, speaking of Abraham, looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Drop down to verse 13 is why I continue to tie this verse. For these, including Abraham, 
by the way, including Sarai, by the way, including all of the characters before him, whether it be Noah or Enoch or Abel or any of those who would be later than him, whether it be Samson or Jetha or Barak or Rahab or whomever, for all these died in faith. Watch it. Not having received the promises, but having seen them far off. I've heard sermons preached. I'm sure that you have heard the the thought at least expressed, whether it be by sermon or class or, or maybe just your reading, to say that these men, including Abraham specifically here, he saw the invisible. You know, we think about life in essence, basically, if we're not careful, I've been this way. We have the most faith in what we see. Somebody joked with me earlier and said, was that your Cadillac in the parking lot? If it's your Cadillac, I don't mean anything about that. They said, is that your Cadillac in the parking lot? It's not my Cadillac. I don't have one. Uh, I couldn't afford the gas to put in one. But what if I say it? What if I said that I was going to choose someone out of this audience right now this morning and give them my Cadillac? Somebody might say, let me see it. You don't look like you have a Cadillac. Let me see it. That wouldn't be faith. No faith would be in that instance to say, okay, maybe I'll be the one. I don't have to see it. We're talking about faith in the unseen. Abraham had here then from that perspective what I'm calling the vision principle. And what I really want to claim that over toward though, however, is not just he saw it, but he focused on it. When we read across the words here that he looked, the word looked here from the Greek language means he focused on, he bore his mind toward a city whose builders and maker and foundation, all these, is God. It is very important, very, very important, essential that we as Christians, that we have that sort of a vision, that we keep our focus. Oh, we may hear the voice of God. We may begin the venture of God. We may in turn even have the values that God would have us to have. But if we cannot keep on doing that, keep on looking, we'll fail. You can put a reference over in your Bible here at that point then to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18. The Bible says this, For we look not on the things which are seen, but on the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. That's a good point, Paul. The things which are seen, he says they are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Keep my Focus. Abraham kept his focus. Why is he a man of great faith? Because of his vision. And then as we close, and you go ahead and be ready to grab your songbooks. Not only because of the vision that he had, but also because of the victory that he saw. When he looked forward, he saw something. He understood something. Now this would include Sarah, and we're not going to spend time specifically on her. But to read across it, it says, For he looked for a city whose builder and maker and foundation and maker is God. Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength, conceived seed, and was delivered a child for when she was past age. Why is that? Why did Sarah know that she could do that? 
because she judged him, that's God, to be faithful who had promised. Therefore, verse 12, to me this whole victory principle, the whole ending of this, puts itself on the word therefore. Therefore sprang thee even of one, and him as good as dead. Now speaking of what would be ultimately Isaac, and he would be in the eyes of God as good as dead when the sacrifice that we'll speak of in another day came. But it says, seeing him as good as dead, so as many as the stars, the sky, and the multitude, and the sand by which the seashore was innumerable. Why is it that they saw a child which by physical means was impossible? She was 90. He was 100 some odd years old. She had been to that point in her life, according to scriptures, barren to that point. Why, oh why God, would they ever conceive or think or consider they could have a child? And more especially than that, why would they ever think that the baby to whom she would give birth would be the one who would set out to be the one who would number them above the stars, who would number his descendants even above the sands of the sea? Why, why, why would they think that way? The word therefore says it's because of faith. Because of the faith that they have. So what is the principle then? The principle is the victory principle. What is the application of that? We ought to, through faith, go ahead now and enjoy the promises of God. Somebody says, I can't wait to get to heaven. Friends, I'm living in the church, which to me is heaven on earth. It's not the fullness of it. It's not the fulfillment totally of it entirely. But it can be and it ought to be for the child of God. Heaven on earth. The unwavering faith of Abraham. The same faith I should find. Let me ask you these questions then. Do I hear the voice of God today? Not literally, not not, not physically, but, but if God called down and He had called from heaven on occasions, Jesus Himself speaking, asked us, begged of us, commanded upon us that we hear His word. Do I hear it? Do I in turn believe upon him? Jesus says, except you believe that I am. King James implies he. That's not really there, but it's understood understood that I am he. You shall die in your sins. That's the voice of God. To repent of my sins, Luke 13, 3 and 5. Jesus said, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Be willing to confess his name. He commanded upon us, promised really, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. If you'll confess me before men, it'll be him who I'll confess before the Father. Contrasting that, he spoke of a denial process. Being willing to be baptized, that's the voice of God. Now, if all the world would hear that, would all the world venture to do it? If they had faith, they would. They would venture as Abraham would. Would all the world then, if they did that, if they heard, believed, repented, confessed, and were baptized, if all of us as individuals here this morning who have not done that would do that, would we be ready to set our values in order to know that God and heaven is our home and that's where we ought to be? And could we do it with such fervor? 
to keep that focus and that vision to the point that the promises of God, including heaven itself, we find victory now. Could we do that? We ought to. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God, please obey his will. Do what he commanded. Hear his voice. If you're here and you're a child of God, and for whatever reason your faith would waver, your life should fall apart, sins would be committed, why not come home? We pray and repentance. While together we stand and as we sing.